Welcome to the eighth episode of the Animal Riot Podcast, brought to you by Animal Riot Press, a literary press for books that matter. It's your producer, Katie, here, and this episode has been edited to reflect our new name. If you're new to the Animal Riot community, welcome, and you can find out more about us at AnimalRiotPress.com. Now on to the episode with today's guests, Kate Smeisner and Sergio De La Pava. again today with Kate Meisner, the generous and thoughtful director of PEN America's prison writing program, and also with Sergio de la Pava, the best maximalist writer alive, if you're asking this nice young Jewish boy. So uh, how about we do some quick... Inter- oh, actually, no. I'll do the challenge first. We have a huge spread of cheese and bread and hummus. It's very Mediterranean, actually. And lox. And Kate has to eat all of it. Okay. Now introduce yourself, Kate. <laughs> I'm Kate's. I'm gluten-free, so I will not be eating all of it, so I automatically lose the challenge. Okay. And it, turn it off. <laughs> I am a writer, poet, illustrator, program director of the Prison and Justice Writing Program at PEN America. That's a mouthful. And I'm glad to be hanging with you guys again. We'll superimpose it on the last time you introduced yourself. Yourself, I'm, little, I'm sure it'll be the exact same. Yeah. Like the cadence is perfect. Yeah. I'm sure. Yeah, It's like your elevator pitch, you know? Uh-huh. An elevator pitch for a human being. That's the world we live in, Sergio. <laughs> I What's don't your know brand? what to say other than glad to be here. Let's talk uh, whatever you want to talk about. I'm a public defender and a writer. Beautiful. We need to get you branded. That does not live in Brooklyn. Right. That's the most so, important part. Yeah. <laughs> and when, you know, this is purely audio, right? So mm-hmm. there's mm-hmm. about a pound, three pounds of food, and Kate said... This isn't a challenge at all. This is like a typical afternoon for me. Especially that really, that one block of cheese, because last time I was here, I think (laughs) I finished it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. While you're engaging in the challenge, just start talking about some things. Let's start with how how you guys met. Sure, we met because I reached out to Sergio, really, and said, we're doing all this work around prison and justice and writing. Well, we've been doing it for a long time, but now I'm here doing it. And I would love for you to come and stand in for a writer in prison who won an award with us this year and read an excerpt of his fiction piece. And Sergio said, sure, I'd love to. And then he came and it was fantastic. And then we got one of the best letters of my entire life, let's just be honest, from the writer Peter Dunn, who was just really astonished and and felt very validated, uh, which made me feel great by the way that his work appeared in the world. This was was the incarcerated writer, right? Right. And Uh he's an excellent writer. So it was really felt great. It was a wonderful letter, huh? I mean, you're, it was a remarkable letter. I mean, of course, I messed up. I was going to bring it and read from it. Oh, I have it. Yeah, l- we could totally get do it that. Oh, yeah, yeah right. we should do but that. While you're doing, while it. you're doing that, I'll, I'll say that you're underselling this event a little bit because it was truly spectacular. It was in Brooklyn, and there was a live performance of a play. Maybe. Yes. Um, there was m- tremendous music. There was a lot of reading of, of poetry, and the piece that I read kind of centered around an, I'm going to call it a CO-sanctioned assault in, in a prison. Whoa. Yeah, which is, a, unfortunately, a common thing, at least in... Totally in fiction? Or was it... It was... It was, I mean, it was being labeled as fiction, yeah, certainly. Yeah. yeah. It was powerful. It was moving. And, and I just thought the entire event was really spectacular. I had a lot of colleagues of mine from the public defender world who 
you would not think would have been moved by this event as much as the average person because we've kind of lived this world of interacting with incarcerated people and trying to find some way to make them uh, not be incarcerated or to reduce the amount of time they've been incarcerated. But they all uniformly said to me that this gave them a different perspective on our work, right? Wow. So I, I just commend, I, I did that night, but I commend you again for just a brilliant event. And anything like that in the future, I'm, I'm down. Don't, Thank you. You know, w- without doubt. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's really encouraging to hear, especially to hear about your colleagues as well. And Sergio also, just to give him more props, then came very shortly after and spoke with our Writing for Justice fellows. We had a writer's lunch with the folks that were writing, journalists, no- novelists, one novelist, Sergio, uh-huh. et cetera, who came in and hung out with some of our folks who are embarking on their projects and had some informal dialogue and conversation. And I put Sergio on to dig in. He'd never had it and he loved it. Recall. <laughs> I was about to, <laughs> I was about to ask you what that was again dig in. because I Two meant, yeah dig in all right I have free the commercial letter. for digging I have the letter from Peter yeah. if you want to read from I it. do all right so Take I guess you got you guys meaning Penn sent them what exactly the the we bound send, anthology we so we did for the first time ever a print anthology from the Prison Writing Awards that's been ha- these awards have been going on for thirty years first annual. It's a really beautiful book, covered, drawn by Molly Crabapple, blurbs from Piper Kerman, Kisei Lehman, whose name I never get right, so sorry about that, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really proud of the book. And we sent the book to every winner, obviously, whose work appeared in it, but we also sent photographs from the night with nice printouts, specifically of their piece being read with their name and the piece projected behind the reader. So Peter got a lot of Sergio, as well as photos from the other events. We sent images of the slides. We sent feedback that people had written to us about the event. We compiled it into that package. And of course, I read a letter introducing it all. So it's a package of ephemera from the evening that they couldn't participate in, where they see their work come alive. I mean, just because I, I can imagine if that was me, I would be like, my perspective on even, even it's funny because Sergio talks about this in his book about like the difference between the physical and metaphysical barriers that keep you in, like incarcerated, you know. Sure. And just having that media and being able to see that would completely change my perspective on my entire life. I mean, because yeah. of the fact that I'm sitting in this cell or whatever, you know. Well, I, I mean, think that this is exactly what Peter speaks to. Just the, the, the futility I feel when I'm trying to get stuff published as like a you know, quote-unquote difficult writer, which obviously Sergio's dealt with too. I mean, it's just, that this is like, an it's an exponent of that, you know, it's Mm. just, it's amazing. But anyways. I do want to read from the letter. I'm not going to read the entire letter. It's a little long, but this is is what he says about receiving the package that you sent him, Kate. He's, the rest is a quote. I finally understood what it means to cry tears of joy. I literally stared at everything for hours as if afraid that blinking would cause it to vanish. I mean, this guy's like an artist. Mm-hmm. You can just hear that in that, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The next morning, I bolted awake, emptied the contents of the envelope on my bed, and exhaled, relieved that it wasn't a dream. Thank you and Penn. We need more people like you in society, those who are brave and selfless and committed enough to fight for the changes this world desperately needs. I'm honored that you were moved enough by my story to include it in the project. Everything looks so perfect. Really, I hope those who attended or live streamed the event came away thinking. Prisoners are people too. They have families and friends, hopes and dreams. They are not the monsters I once thought they were. Some of them are good people who made bad decisions when they were younger. 
I mean, it goes on, but receiving a letter like that, and then, then he says uh, to my dismay, I have a few questions about the event. Did you choose Sergio de la Pava to read my work, or did he, and if so, why? <laughs> also, what did he say about it? <laughs> I'm going to read his book, um, and, and it goes on in, in that direction. I like how he said, they're not the monsters I once thought they were, you know? That, you know, it's like he has that, it, it's almost that self-conscious awareness where he's kind of removed from his own body and I think look, looking at himself. I, 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 it seems like a natural human inclination to want to judge others harshly and probably mm. no, nobody feels that more than incarcerated oh, people. Oh, yeah. Sure. I mean, I think about that every day. But the funny part is that I've interacted with incarcerated people probably much more, uh, you know, more often than the average person. The people doing the incarcerating, like most directly like corrections officers and stuff are the ones that that least feel that way they, mm -hmm. they 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 most see how permeable the barrier is between being somebody being incarcerated or not and mm -hmm. probably the least judgy to use a, a made-up word towards that community than ever mm. but i have noted may could just be wanting this to be true maybe but i have noticed a big pretty significant change in society's view towards um, incarceration, incarcerated people, mass incarceration, whatever you want to call it, from the time that I started more than working in this area more than 20 years ago. At that time, there was like four of us doing this work. Mm. I mean, my wife were 50% of them, and, <laughs> and nobody could understand why you would do it. Right. Not, and I think that a lot of that has, has melted away. Yeah, mm -hmm. we have, I mean, we had a Democrat who started the kind of like prison industrial complex. complex. I mean, that just shows how much has changed since then. I mean... I can't imagine a liberal standing up there and saying we need more prisons and like you know stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's it's. I mean, the best word to use is probably an awakening in the last yeah. six mm -hmm. years, maybe five years, to what had been going on and the importance of finding a way to stem the tide. Yeah, absolutely, and thank you for reading that letter from Peter. Peter Dennis, his name. He has other work published online as well. If you're interested in looking it up. You never. I hear you read that. No matter. I've read that letter many times. It really moved me, and I still. I still get choked up hearing it. Just a fun note to share with you all, is that I just maybe last week got another letter from Peter that included a line or two of feedback to many of the other writers in the anthology, asking us to send it to them, which also made me feel really great. Yeah, I was going to ask for an update. And what's yeah. his What's his situation? Like, are we Are we able to talk about that right now? Is he Is how, how much more time does he have? You know, blah blah blah. I think he says in the letter. I can't. I can't remember exactly. I think it's at least seven years. I'm not positive about that. He's at Eastern Correctional. Uh -huh. You can write to him. You can look up anybody in prison and write to them. Sure. Peter Dunn. Um, mm -hmm. And this year for our World Voices Festival event in our, in our program, we're doing, we commissioned writers actually that we work with that have won awards or that we know are great writers to write new pieces on the topic of writing in prison under the public versus private dialogue or conversation. We had a series of prompts and Peter wrote something really great. So I'm sure we'll see his work Ooh. on stage in May as well. Yeah, I got to I got to check him out. I'm going to take a little tangent right here. I got a I got a question for both of you guys because you obviously have so much experience experience in this entire, you know, justice complex that we have. Because things have changed so rapidly as you said, Sergio, Sergio in the, in the last 20 years or so. Are we like getting to a point where we're moving towards like a post-judgment society where we're realizing that there's obviously a better way to rehabilitate people and the punishment hmm. that sounds Mo probably a little too optimistic mm -hmm. yeah um and <laughs> yeah. i'll refer you back to my comment about just the pleasure that human beings derive from judging others harshly yeah, it's yeah. going to be hard to overcome that 
to, I mean, there are people who are abolitionists when it comes to prison. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I could probably be convinced to join them. Um, but I think the, the reality is more not as um, sweeping a change as, as that and, and more just a, a recognition that there are other options other than incarceration that make a hell of a lot more sense, especially when you're talking about nonviolent offenders mm-hmm. whose often conduct is motivated by addiction issues or yes. mental health issues. That's my, is, that's, those are my passion projects. Kind of, I mean, I was, I was a psych major in college and I, was, I thought about being a psychiatrist or a psychologist, whatever, what have you, clinician of some sort. And addiction is probably, uh, Kate and I spent like half an hour talking about this last week. I, you know, I went to research labs. I did all this stuff. I'm obsessed with the subject. I think it's, I'm borderline I borderline think that drugs should be legal, just straight up. I, I think it's ridiculous, and I could talk about that at length. But I, I kind of want to get your perspective. Like you have, you deal with you know people who come in, and there's a whole range of issues that brings you to that point, right? So, what is your opinion on on drugs in general? All right. I mean, how yeah. much time do you have? <laughs> I wanted I wanted a more I, specific I most, question, I'm, but I like think, you know, I, it may just be my opinion. But I mean, I think that most people. Ad- majority of people addicted to something maybe a substance maybe something else i agree mm. if i if i stopped drinking coffee i would pick something else up or if i if i stopped smoking weed i would i would just do something else that i fixate on i i, I totally believe that you know i think existence or life is probably really difficult and one of the things that i one of, one of the things that i would marshal as evidence towards that is the average human beings need to kind of engage in, in a compulsive activity to deal with that fact. Most of the people that I meet that are that have become addicted to narcotics, let's say, the addiction is more the symptom of something else that's underlying their lives rather than the thing that's caused. And then that in itself causes a whole bunch of other problems like mm-hmm. involvement in the criminal justice system. Well, especially because once it's illegal, then you have to you have to be violent in order to protect that business. There's also just like a large incidence of mental health issues, untreated in this country, untreated mental health issues that contribute to all these things. And if you view addiction as as kind of in that sphere, it kind of all starts to make a lot more sense. But a, a really large percentage of the law firm, the public defender office that I work at's clients have some form of mental health issue that they could benefit from some kind of targeted assistance with. Uh-huh. Whether that be whether you include drug addiction as part of that, or just say that that's a reason that leads to drug addiction. Often, I'm not a I'm not a clinician. I also uh, studied psychology as an undergrad and considered that, but I didn't go in that direction. But so a lot of this is just anecdotal of you know 20 years of meeting people who mm-hmm. have found themselves in the criminal justice system. But um, honestly, that's a way more broad and informed perspective than I think. Ninety nine point nine percent of the public has on drug use and uh, addiction. Yeah, and I mean, a I lot think of it's this- I think it's extremely binary. I mean, you have like, you know, I mean, for example, you have our our attorney general come up and say if you smoke weed, you're a bad person. It's just incredibly primitive, I think. But I'm I, I, one thing I want to ask you guys. So if you think you're you're going to replace any drug with compulsion, like we all do, what are your guys' compulsions? Worrying. <laughs> Worrying, yeah, that's like that? that's like worrying. axiomatic. Oh, worrying, anxiety. You're not even sublimating it. You're just like I'm just <laughs> spinning, ruminating. That's you know, that's maybe that's the you know, 
the epitome of maturity right there. You think, you think <laughs> I think the phone is also very, very addictive. Yeah. And social media is very, very addictive, and I try not to fall into that trap, but sometimes I'll find myself like, whoa, I just wasted a half hour doing nothing. Uh-huh. And I think that there's, I mean, there's a, there's a hit that comes, obviously. Oh, I got a new message. Oh, I got a new like. That's been, you know, people have been talking about this, and so I'm not making this up. Mm-hmm. But yet, we still use them. I don't know. I think that there's something that's But I'm interested in, though, in worrying... You, you don't think that worrying gives you pleasure, do you? Or maybe you do. I don't, I'm not trying to kind of... Or resolve something else. I kind of, I've kind of always thought that it was a closed system of like chasing like compulsions and obsessions. And it's like, I, if I, I'm I not, view if compulsions I'm, as trying to turn something else off or trying to overshadow something uh-huh. else. Right, right, That's right. the way I view it. No, it's, um, it's, that's like obsession. It's, it's, it's really, well, you sink into the opposite. You sink into the anxiety. The drug takes... You ostensibly so would, takes away the anxiety. So, so I would think the anxiety is yeah. the thing that I would engage in a compulsion to right. avoid. Right, right, mm-hmm. right. That's true. That's true. But if if for uh, if my compulsion were playing golf, which is an expensive compulsion, yeah. right, like that. I don't, I don't play. That's golf. the last thing I would have right. thought I heard. I don't I would play, hear from your mouth. Right, I don't play <laughs> golf. I'm just picking uh, an example of something because that then I would I would be engaging in that because I need to shut down the voice that's always anxious. Right, mm-hmm. that's or, true. So, for example, as we were talking earlier, marijuana use is very widespread mm-hmm. in, in the teen population that my office um, deals with, Te- teens involved in the criminal justice system. And I've observed, again, not statistically significant, just an observation that a lot of them have issues that I think causes them to turn marijuana use from something that could be recreational or somehow be enjoyable to, into a compulsion, into an everyday compulsion, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, medicine or, a stretch or self, self-medicating, self essentially. Right. And we think we see that with the, yeah. what's the opiates? Mm-hmm. The opiate mm-hmm. is that it's something that, that you're driven to do, I think, often as a means of ignoring or sublimating something else. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, ha- so And I feel that way about writing. For myself, mm, yeah, that mm-hmm. that when I am writing fiction, it's an attempt to deal with an anxiety, a deep-seated anxiety that I have about not being able to control the world that mm. I live in. Mm. That makes so, sense. So, I mean, it's, a, it's writing fiction is a great way to control how certain things are going to happen to invented people or invented world, and that's the exact same I've, thought I've had. Yeah, right, sometimes I've thought. You, you get and to play my God. compulsion to do that is an attempt to deal with a psychological fissure that I have that mm. makes me um, inordinately upset about the fact that the world is about a loss of control. Mm-hmm. Mm. That makes sense. I wish writing was more of a compulsion for me. <laughs> I would do more of it. I, I wish writing, I wish I did more writing, I guess. Do you write every day? No. Your books are enormous. You must do a ton of writing. If you break it down, the amount of pages I've published, how long I've been writing, it's not, it's, it, it, you know Fair what enough. I mean? I, well, that's because you probably, person, write, you probably write clean sentences. If you're like me, then you write about 2 million words for, for one book. <laughs> that's like 100,000 that. words. That's true that I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't write, you know, 500 pages and then publish 100. Uh-huh. I yeah. write 120 and publish 100, 110 mm-hmm. and write, you know, something That's like the difference that. between me and you. So talent <laughs> so but the difference is but it, i don't know what motivates 
fiction writing, I can kind of pretend that something motivates it now, but it would be diff- something different than what motivated it when I first started doing it. Mm. Because I'm um, certainly nobody gets paid to be a fiction. Unlike most jobs, you don't get paid to be a fiction writer as you're first writing fiction. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Nobody <laughs> says you're hired to be a writer, a oh, novelist. Now, a year right, from now, we're going right. to want that novel that we've been paying for. Oh, that for. should right. be, I mean, right. that, yeah, that should be day one lesson in, in you know, creative writing w- when you're a sophomore. So you know? in some <laughs> respect, anybody who, who wrote a first novel just wrote it, right? They weren't being paid to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'll have exceptions if somebody was famous beforehand and they somehow wrote a novel, which happens occasionally. But, right. But... When you think back to writing that first novel or that first collection of poetry or that first collection of short stories, whatever it is, you are essentially doing it on spec. So the motivation couldn't have been the usual work-like obligation. The reason you go to an office, for example, put on a suit and you do that because you're getting paid to do it contemporaneously. Mm -hmm. When you create art, often you're just, there must be something else that's driving you to do it that, that is not economic obligation. Well, I think that's right. And actually, I think that that idea of it being a relieving factor or some kind of mechanism to take you either out of pain or some something redirecting pain or maybe not pain or lack of control, this or that. I mean, certainly when I was a child, that was the case of feeling really, you know, I've been making art and writing as an identity since I was very, very young, five, you know, I had that language, luckily from my So you didn't have a contract. Parents, like no, I didn't. I wasn't a child star of art, but... Yeah. We're still um, waiting on the manuscript. You know, it's, <laughs> but I think that as a child, it was very clear. It's a very clear looking back that I was bullied a lot. I was more comfortable with the adults. My poor Kate sob story. But really, you know, that's what it was, was going into creating my own world. Yeah, it's, and making that, that's, books a, and making that's almost art. a, uh, like a getaway. Like that's more of a I think pure it's many, escape. Well, ma- many I, young people who create, that's, yeah. it starts at a very early age for some folks as well as a and I don't think about it in the same terms as an adult but it must must be there must be a comfort there for me too that has been there for Definitely. a long time well it, it might have it might have uh, merged with some of what uh, Sergio was saying but basically what happened with me is I was I was a like a three sport like big time athlete when I was a kid you know Really? And but when I was a teenager when I started playing for my high school teams I started getting panic attacks before my basketball games and stuff like that and I that loss of control, that's the first thing that kind of drove me to make art was because I could create my own world while figuring out why things were happening to me and why things were happening in the world. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I can really relate to that. I also think the other half of it for me is that escape, just not having to deal with the anxiety and the pressure of, I mean, you know, for better or worse, capitalism, essentially, mm-hmm. especially at this point. It's tough out there. I, I would think <laughs> most artists would have a similar answer. That'd be my guess. That art, although many people can also be heavy drug users and artists, so it doesn't necessarily replace that. But there's something in the creative process, obviously, that we know is satisfying. At most extreme, maybe healing, guiding, directing can be torturing. I'm sure it is sometimes. All those things. But I don't know. I mean, to your original question, I'm I am not necessarily somebody who I've never been addicted to drugs, so it's hard for me to imagine what I would replace that with because it seems to have such an intense grip on folks when it's happening. I guess Mm -hmm. I used to smoke cigarettes. 
So that's the closest I could come to understanding that addiction. But then I got off cigarettes with another drug, which was Wellbutrin, which they prescribe under another name to help quit smoking. So yeah, yeah, no, that that's <laughs> you a, know? that's a pattern that yeah that that that's often prescribed to stop smoking. But I thought I think you bring it bring up a really good point because you're immediately coming out and saying I have no experience with this personally. So I don't know what it's like. And to me, it's very ironic that we have public figures and leaders that make legislation and policy that don't have experience with this, don't research this. They have, you know, they have little birds in their ear, you know, the experts, quote unquote. But I don't understand why people that have no experience with this and haven't studied this are in control of the policy. And for example, yeah. um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but there's a, uh, we, we discussed this on the first time, the, the first uh, part of the series. There's an herb called Kratom that I, we were drinking together. And it's legal right now. It's an Indonesian plant that has a very, very small amount of an opioid property in it, but the rest is like it's a full battery of neurotransmitters that it affects. It's like, you know, every, like really everything. It's, it's a, an herbal antidepressant, really. It's like pretty amazing. And the FDA, of course, is trying to ban it now. And of course, their, their, their line is the same one that it was with weed. It's like, oh, well, we got to research it, but you can't research it unless it's legal. And then around you go, you know, and so they're just going to probably ban it outright. But as soon as that happens, you're going to see another one to two million former opioid addicts right back out on the street. It's going to happen like that, you know? Yeah, I think and that's I, a problem I, across I just, the board. I don't understand well, most our things, policy. Most people making policies about things are not directly experienced in that world. And I, I actually have come to think over the last two years probably is to have a lot of hope around the act of empathy. And <laughs> I've gotten more cynical in my older age, but I think that empathy is a lot harder for humans than we think it is. I think there's an intellectual part of us that can, that can understand other people's experiences that are different than our own through observation. I think that we can be moved by people's experiences through things we see. But I actually think that really trying to understand somebody else's experience if it's especially if it's vastly different from your own it's actually quite hard for mm -hmm. humans to make that leap well, and technically distance. empathy isn't it actually it's like vicariously experiencing not just intellectually like figuring your way into someone's shoes it's like I feel like that's like the pure form of empathy. I don't know. Now I'm just like dealing in semantics, but I'm not sure. I mean, I'm yeah. not sure what it is or isn't, but I think that, Cause that intellectual exercise can be fun and it can be very revealing in its own way. But to actually have that kind of like, like almost like phantom, like, you know, that yeah. phantom sense. Right. Is, it, it is very, it's much more rare. I think that's where people Very rely, rare. obviously, on books and movies. But I do think about, like, if somebody's grown up in a part of the world or even country that you've never seen or never been to, a difficulty in even... I've seen liberal people who tout empathy. I'm sure I've done this myself many a time, who just don't can't seem to understand that people see through different perspectives or they you do understand but not quite it's more that when the microaggressions start to happen that folks talk about well let's talk about two different i think you two are speaking about empathy in a different way and i f think i know what you're talking about because that's what i feel mm -hmm. when you're let let's take yep. this thing and talk about empathy for a moment sure when you feel empathy towards someone do you have an intervening step whereby you say Imagine if I were that person and that's what's causing me 
to feel empathy. Because I think what Brian's saying and what I experience is that I don't have that intervening step. Mm-hmm. I just kind of like it's feel it as mm-hmm. if I were that person, but without having to do any, engage in any kind of imaginative act of pretending to be that person. Well, I don't think that that's, I, I'm not necessarily talking about myself. I mean, I think I've been moved like that plenty of times. But I think that a lot of people haven't or don't, or there are situations where, I mean, how do you how do you even make that leap? Is it because you're you're interacting with somebody right in front of you, maybe, and seeing some vulnerability? I think well, I vulnerability think when, moves us. I think what happens is that empathy is like anything else, and pe- different people have different abilities yeah. in it. Sure. And so when we're dealing with the person who's not empathetic, we end up resorting to saying to them. Okay, you don't know what empathy is like, but I'm sure you know what self-interest is like. Mm. Now, ima- now we're asking you to do right. this imaginative right. step where you imagine that you are this person. And we're already at a disadvantage. Mm. We're dealing with somebody who, for whom empathy doesn't come naturally to them. So the only way we can try to make them understand what we feel as empathetic people is asking them to pretend that their self-interest were being activated. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is that for me, I never, it, I, I don't have that barrier. Yeah. And it's probably... Yeah. And, and, and I feel it, not as if it were happening to me. I just feel it without. Well, you that wouldn't do of... the work you do otherwise. Neither would I. So absolutely. But I, I think like this, where, where I question empathy as something that you know we talk about needing to activate a lot, or how do we do it really for other people is, you know, thinking about racism, sexism. I mean, these pervasive, insidious, you know, that are obviously layered, and we talk about you know implicit bias and all this. People aren't aware of it. But I, I, I wonder I wonder about empathy in those conversations. Like it baffles me how how folks can feel so removed from the, another person's experience. So I've lost a little bit of faith in that kind of uh, in in the act of empathy. Like, yeah, I do think that while it is almost like you know something like addiction where you're predisposed to it or a, any other ability like something you're predisposed to. I think there can be a sort of like cognitive behavioral therapy sort of learning through that intermediary step that Sergio was talking about. I think it's requ- I think it's required in order to get to that point where you can better immediately just like feel what that person's feeling instead of say maybe there's a maybe there's a barrier before where you know someone says I think these people like I think this this criminal is bad. <laughs> but once you are once you are exposed to more and more and you force yourself to think about it more and more, once you break down some of those barriers, which are basically assumptions, you know, which are prejudices, then I think you're more you're just opening the gateway to like just feel that thing. And I don't know. I mean, I'm, now That's I'm starting true. to think like what kind of fears belie all of that stuff. Um, but the letter we read from earlier, right, is mm. is an individual telling us that he believes that because of art, right, that he can activate empathy. Okay, you've sold Do, me. No, but doesn't he say? <laughs> doesn't he say? I hope people see now that yeah. prisoners are just like other people. What uh-huh. is he? What is he hoping right. they are reacting to? Right. They're hoping he reacting. They're reacting to his art. But and I don't even say that this this two different forms of empathy—the one that needs to be activated and the one that comes natural to you—that I'm not saying that it's superior to have the one that comes natural to you. It's just like anything else. It's almost just like a trait you have. So my wife and I have it at this really high level, and we would do this thing where <laughs> it's almost embarrassing to me. Like if we met somebody, like like for example, we'd be looking for an apartment. We'd go into someone's home to show us the apartment, and then we'd see what appear to be kind of really heartbreaking circumstances. Mm. Maybe it would be a single mother uh, dealing with a child with disabilities and and clearly not being able to to handle things economically. Mm. We'd look at the apartment. We'd walk out. 
we'd walk out such a wreck that we would literally engage in this activity. And I'm not even kidding. We would say to each other, well, obviously she has to move because she just won the lotto and she's going to buy this building and she's renting it. And we would create this entire invented narrative that would allow us, and we knew we were doing it and we were joking about it, but it would allow us to somehow be able to go on with our day. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise... You'll be destroyed. It's just crippling. It. It's yeah. just like being like a radio that's always on and picking up every sound wave when you're flipping the stations and nothing's coming through. Yeah. Uh-huh. That's, I mean, part of the great blessings of my life is to meet somebody else who's also that way so that I don't have to kind of apologize for it. But it's that pronounced where we would we would laugh as we were doing it. But mm-hmm. we'd be in the car walking out and we'd just be like, well, obvi-, and we still do that to this day in, in similar circumstances. And I do the job that I do and it, be- it becomes really difficult because in a sense you have to at some point create a professional distance in order to do engage in certain professional activities that are going to try yeah. to help this person rather than just kind of like break down and be like, why is the world so unfair yeah. that this person has to... Yeah. overcome these barriers well well without that mo- without that objectivity it's hard to do your job yeah and it's like hard and, to make and, the hard and decisions my, when my clients you know there are instances where our clients turn to us by us i mean public defenders and say you're not the one going to jail how come you're taking this so calm I'm like if you're going in for an operation do you want the surgeon to come in and be like look like he's just so stressed and so invested yeah. or do you want a certain kind we of have to hold space. clinical professional distance because there are things that have to be done right mm-hmm. that that you know, you have hopefully family and friends who can kind of just relate on that uh, tragic level about the tragedy of your circumstances. I'm not sure that your lawyer should be <laughs> reacting that yeah. way in order to accomplish certain things that need to be accomplished in a courtroom or in front of a right. jury. And also you can be deeply moved and disturbed, which I relate to everything you're saying on a, on a very deep level as well. I'm very similar. Uh, but ultimately, you aren't the one going to jail. It's right. So if you break down, then right. there's also something that's a little selfish. Yeah, why are you doing that? You, you know. Yeah. But I do think that there's. I mean, that's why there's there there's been a, there's a name for secondary trauma because it does affect people who work really close to difficult scenarios. Mm-hmm. And I actually a book I recommend is Trauma Stewardship, which someone recommended to me when I was getting pretty destroyed by my work, and it was really affecting my health, everything. And it helped me put some things in perspective. And they have this great wheel, the author in the beginning of the book, that shows sort of different stages that people go through when they're experiencing secondary trauma. And I said, oh, man, okay, I need to read this book. And it's pretty, it's things you already know, exactly what you're saying. You have to know how to create some distance. You have to understand your your scenario is not that scenario. And so and you have to fill yourself up so then you can help somebody else. But it was very comforting for me. So if anybody's listening to this who struggles, it's a good book. Mm. It's worth it. It's tough, yeah. And I think there's a lot of people who work in these systems who experience it without even realizing it. And then what what kind of pain does that distribute and cause around community, you know, who don't have a name for it necessarily? Well, yeah. A lack of awareness is a probably the one of the biggest reasons for a lot of the problems in our world. <laughs> but yeah. so yeah, I uh I'm I have a, to bring it all back, I mean, the, yeah, the kind of campaign against mass incarceration can be viewed as just like a whole giant program trying to get people to engage in this act of empathy. That's true. And part of the ways we do it are just kind of like, hey, listen, this person got addicted to drugs. Are you addicted to, like, wine? Are you addicted? You can, and you're trying to make the person understand how it is that the person behind bars is not a monster and is right. that. Yep. And, and it's yeah. – we I don't – we don't need to target this at the highly empathetic individuals. Those people already don't need that. They don't need that yeah. step. It's a certain kind of person who needs to, to understand how something like that could happen to them before mm-hmm. they can activate any kind of energy towards changing. 
I think that's what I struggle with with that you know that event you read at, which was thank you, wonderful, and it was really exciting to put together. Who's in the room? Mm. You know, how do you get it out of that room? And I guess that's where I lose some of the losing faith. I don't know. I lose faith around humanity all the time. <laughs> it's like a cyclical thing for me, and then I get hope again. And so uh, you know. It's just something that I think about. I use. I guess I used to have an answer that came really easily. Art creates empathy. That's its purpose. That's its use. It's great for that. And I've been challenged in that over the past few years of going, well, how well does it do it? And how do we get it outside of the room with the choir? But also I know this conversation about prison, particularly or mass incarceration. Even, I think we might have been talking about this on the last, I don't know if I'm repeating myself, last podcast but even folks that are liberally minded, there's still a lot of gaps around this. And it's illustrated by the the question I always get when I'm talking to people who I think would be automatically on board thinking about reform issues and alternatives to incarceration. Well, what about serial killers? Like, well, do you know how many people in prison are serial killers? Yeah. Very few. But also, honestly, it's something I don't know how to answer. I'm like, I'd, you, you know what, you're right. That's where I do get stuck. Because there are... There are crimes and there are people who commit crimes. I was just watching, embarrassingly, maybe that American true crime of the guy who killed Versace. You're watching this guy like, oh my, what? How how does somebody become that way? But I do think that that at base level, these are some of the most unanswerable questions of being a human being. I don't know. How do you deal with that? There, like, there, are, some, there are some indicators for, for serial killers. They're well, I like, do know that, you yeah, know, yeah. antisocial personality and as a kid and all yeah. this, but I, I just and, wonder. And like the, and the, and the home life, there's like a, there's, there are some correlations like with relationships with the mother and stuff sure, like that. Sure, but know? what is the, what is the, I think that's where sometimes as much as I'm on the forefront in many ways of having this political conversation Mm -hmm. around mass incarceration and it's wrong and we need to humanize people and this and that, there are places that I also get stuck with some of those really intense crimes and people who don't seem to show remorse. Um, Generally, though, when we're talking about, you know, uh, against mass incarceration, we're talking about the fact that in 1973, there were 250,000 people incarcerated, and today there's two and a half million. So unless you think that that the average human being took an incredible turn towards, uh, you know, violating the laws and becoming serial killers, for example, or something like that, then you're going to have a hard time justifying it because all the statistics available will say that violent crime has dropped precipitously since 73. Right. And anecdotally, that seems right, too. I guess um, I'm thinking about prison abolitionists when it's, you know, abolish any form <clears throat> of that. So I, I guess I get curious about, you know, what are we actually talking about on the whole? And not even with serial killers an extreme, but even with just, I've, I know a lot of people who have committed really pretty intense crimes. And they've, they have, people I know have really changed their lives, but each of those people, I was just writing about this in an essay, have told me, oh, there are some people who belong in prison, though, don't get too self-righteous there, Kate's. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, you would know better than I. And so I, I think sometimes I struggle with, and you're right, mass incarceration is the political umbrella. We're looking at the whole picture, of course. But some of some of those questions stop me a little bit in well, fi- knowing how to... Those who defend mass incarceration have a vested interest in portraying the typical incarcerated person as violent when sure. the statistics are clear just like uh, that just that's not they fall the into case. a category right the, the statistics are clear right. that that's not the case it's not an either or right i don't think it's oh, right. i don't think it's either abolish all prisons or or incarcerate everyone i mean or keep the status quo mm. i mean i think that yeah. that i think a lot of reasonable people think two and a half million seems like too mm. much given yeah. the the stats i think you know but yeah i mean i get 
I get the problem. I, it's just a question of who's being allowed to shape the narrative, who's being allowed to label what the mm. average person mm -hmm. incarcerated looks like. Mm -hmm. I also think there's an issue of, uh, I don't know if criminal justice can ever truly be reformed. Well, I know you kind of said maybe, inferred at maybe never earlier, but <laughs> until we know how much, like what, what level of free will we're working with, because in order to rehabilitate people, we kind of do need to know what drives people to do certain things in certain circumstances. And if that's all it is, just drives and circumstances, then I think that changes the conversation a lot. Well, we've gone a while. From, we we from haven't choice. even mentioned racism, which is a, a big right, part of, of what allows, <laughs> allows people to not be empathetic and distance themselves. Right. Is this really kind of silly, noxious, invented thing that says, well, that person incarcerated doesn't look like me mm -hmm. so you're not activating that part of me that wonders how fair is the system because i could never be part of it because look what that person looks like oh, and yeah. look at what i look like right i mean i think there's that john rawls thing which is like create you know what how would you want society to be if you were about to be born as one of the most vulnerable members of that society. Mm. Who the most vulnerable members of American society are in the 21st century is pretty easy to identify. Mm -hmm. Poor people, and, mm -hmm. and in a lot of cases, people of color. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes you're arguing for change where power resides, and they are able to either consciously or un unconsciously distance themselves from the people mostly affected because they don't look like them. Oh, sounds silly, but I think there's ample evidence that it's a thing. No, I don't <laughs> think it sounds silly at all. I, I, it, I think you're 100%. And I think right. I'm, because I'm in a room with people who have this conversation every day, skipping over things in our conversation as sort of the baseline, like we know this. So let's go into the harder right. question. Right. Mm -hmm. And thank you mm -hmm. for bringing it back because of course, absolutely. It's all about race and class. Yeah. I mean, I think somebody in one of my books says, if the average person being arrested looks like Tom Cruise, you don't think somebody would have done something by mm -hmm, now? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure where I wrote that. But but that's kind of the underlying point, which is that uh, when we say, how is it that this can happen when we know there's this thing called empathy? The, the short answer is going to be that what it takes to activate empathy tends to be similarity. I think that, be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I think that's what I was getting. You have to bridge that distance, yeah. right? So if the people to whom it's happening to are difficult for me to distinguish myself from then empathy is activated more easily you could be one of them more easily. I, that well, could be right that could, we all do this you, right something happens you see somebody get in trouble you say do i do that also mm -hmm. could i be the one getting in trouble no i never do that or you distance yourself. Which well, I think guy, those well, are the like, important questions we need to ask. They really, like, you know. Right. Well, or we purposely engage, in, how we purposely engage in distancing behavior. Well, the person's a complete moron. He did X, Y, Z, which I would never do. Mm. Or something like that. Or, right, right. Or whatever. It's just a natural human inclination immediately to want to distance yourself from somebody from whom something very negative has happened. And feel immune. Because we want to mm -hmm. feel like that negative thing could not happen mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult. We say, you know, go back to Trayvon Martin. Hmm. You say, well, that doesn't look, my son doesn't look like Trayvon hmm. Martin. This isn't. And then the people whose sons do look like Trayvon Martin are like, hold on, mm -hmm. what the hell? Right. Right. And then I'm not saying I'm not, not saying it's not a harsh dividing line. A lot of people who don't have sons who look like Trayvon Martin were also outraged. Sure. My mm -hmm. point is, it's a lot easier to activate it if you're like, oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So what Less bridges work that to do. too? What bridges that too? Because I mean, of course, it's all. It's all, I also think about just the history of our world, and that's colonialism to, in a nutshell. Mm. I see difference. It's wrong. I'm scared of it. I'm going to conquer it mm -hmm. and exploit it. And the fact that, yeah, I wonder how much carry, like, vested, 
what vestige is left over from just the sheer fact that people would come onto new land and then they would share diseases that the other weren't immune to, you know, how much, how much of a, of like a fear factor is residual from that. Probably not too much at this point, but I don't know. It's like there were these biological factors that weren't rooted in race. They were rooted in the fact that people were separate for so long on different just continents and things like that. And I mean, how, how much, how much farther, how far can we be from that when we have not really evolved as a species? We've only just become far more connected. You know, we're more available to each other. So it's like we're playing catch up, you know? And I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I, I think like the continued exchange of information, especially through art, I don't think there's anything. I think I said this on the last podcast. I don't think there's anything we've created that teaches emotions like art, which is incredibly True. important because we suck at that. Emotions yeah. aren't rational. So I don't know. I just provided no answers. No, it's okay. I, I, <laughs> no, provided I provided a very grim outlook. But. I think I was thinking about this because this morning I read an article, I think it was in the Washington Post, about Nicholas Cruz, the Parkland shooter. And his brother, who was a little younger than him, their parents, they didn't know their parents. I think their mother gave them for adoption. They never knew their father raised you know, by another family. Then those parents died when they were teenagers. And I watched a video and read the article of his brother going in to visit him in, in prison and saying, like, who, who are you? This isn't you. And then the kid starts sobbing and he hugs his brother. And, you know, I think that where I get, I think I'm bringing up where I get stuck in the conversation within myself, where, you know, I can politically frame it, of course, and look at the larger picture of the system and why it's wrong. But sometimes when we get down to the individual level, I'm very challenged, and that really challenged me watching and reading that this morning because I'll, I did feel empathy for those kids, mm -hmm. even the one who had killed 17 students and, and destroyed many, many, many people's lives. And then I questioned that. So it, I think that some of these really deep-rooted questions of humanity and, and violence, particularly individual violence, and not so much systemic violence, uh, which I feel much clearer on, I spin in that a little bit. I don't know. Maybe mm -hmm. I'm revealing too much about my inner life over here. I don't here. think you ever need to question anytime you feel empathy, which is a variant of love. Anytime you are increasing the world's collection of love, even at the lowest level, either through understanding somebody who's done something horrific or through just feeling in some sense that judging can be a difficult, fraught activity. Hmm. I think those are positive developments. Mm -hmm. I don't think uh, Thank you, you can say gee, I'm supposed to judge harshly this person and I didn't, what's wrong with me? It may be that we're not supposed to judge too harshly. Uh -huh. It may be that no matter how awful the activity engaged in by an individual, by one of our fellow human beings, is that we're still under, the truth is, the truth, whatever it is, might be that we're still under some kind of obligation to try to understand that. Or Thank try you. to uh, muster, as difficult as it may be, some semblance of empathetic love or just kind of forgiveness and that that's what you're reacting to thank you for saying that it's helpful it's well, helpful and I, in this call-out culture we live in is something i struggle with too there's oh, a lot yeah. of let's condemn let's throw them in jail example. you know and that doesn't, doesn't resonate with me but it, it's it's tough to talk about you know but you can it's still very tough hate to talk the about. thing the person did, did. you sure. can still hate that this is describes the world we live in you can sure. still hate that this is a feature of the world we live in, but it's rarely productive to just say about another human being, 
throw them away and you know they're not entitled to any kind of consideration which is really what our culture does it does does on every level too is what i know the reason i was so happy you brought that letter with you because i think that that's what people who are incarcerated feel must that They they feel that as if everybody who's not in here has essentially thrown us away and said we're not worthy of kind of human dignity. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, those who would battle against people like me who are activists in favor, or yourself and activists in favor of criminal justice reform, will always have at their ready, well, so you're in favor of this guy? He chopped up his whole family and made them into tomato soup. Right. And, well, and, and, and yeah, it's a rhetorically powerful device. That's why it it's is. been in effect forever <laughs> and true. will continue to be in effect because it's a rhetorically powerful device. Yeah. But that doesn't mean they're right and you're wrong. Mm. It just happens to be a really powerful device. Mm-hmm. Sergio, that's so helpful for me. Thank you. It really is. Rhetorical I, I, device, too. Great great to, phrase to think about. And also, Listen, it's a rhetorical device that just, many think decided an election in 1988. Right. First, right? I guess. And I mean, this is very famous. I don't have to delineate it. Uh, as, while he was governor, the Democratic candidate had to approve some kind of prison furlough program. And the Republicans said, you know, here's, here's that prison furlough program. Willie Horton. Willie Horton, right. Mm-hmm. Of course, right. the famous one. It's a powerful device because we're repulsed by the act. Yep. And that repulsion leads to one, judging harshly, but also you want revenge. Yeah. You want, you, you, you're hurt in some sense. Some conception of your humanity has been injured and your response, when, whenever a human being is injured, their first or early, one of the early responses is, I want to injure back. I want to mm-hmm. hurt. Mm-hmm. However, whatever form that takes, and I may not even understand that that's literally what's happening, mm. but it's happening somewhere in there. Mm. We'll be right back after these messages. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Now, there's a lot of framework that I think, I, I think I needed to hear that from somebody else. So often I feel like I'm the one saying yeah. these things. So it's affirming for me to hear. We all need to be valid. That in, in your yeah. extremely articulate way. So thank you. <laughs> I also so, just. I, and I'll let you guys into some inside baseball. We represent some people who've done some pretty crazy things, right? Yeah, yeah. I assume come back so. And like, you, you got that case. Oh, that's awful. Uh-huh. The guy's a sweetheart. Uh-huh. <laughs> we said, no, I love that guy. No, so And another guy, oh, I can't stand that guy. He didn't right. do anything that bad. <laughs> The yeah. truth is, it's very easy to hate and judge at a distance. But yep. when you're sitting across from someone, it gets really difficult, you'll find. Uh-huh. Sure does. It gets really difficult when you're having a conversation with someone to then, you know, maintain that monster narrative. And so what you're reacting to is, oh, there's that monster who did that. I don't need to, if, I don't have to expend any thought on him. I don't have to expend any empathy i don't have to do anything with regard to him that's what judgment does classified as a monster Mm -hmm. shit here's this interview with Mm -hmm. him or whatever it is here's this story and all of a sudden it's like oh really (laughs) that happened to him when he was in second grade that sucks you're 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 making it so i can't just not your fire truck and sometimes it builds up and sometimes it doesn't but you know yeah you know people have been put to death by our criminal justice system who you can kind of go back to the, some of the things that happened to them at an early age or even later on and you could build up pretty easily some pretty strong empathy for the people who've been executed mm-hmm. for the acts Absolutely. that they committed i hate to be referring to things i wrote but i don't even know where i wrote it but at some point somebody visits uh somebody on death row yeah and and they have a reaction similar to what you're describing but then the the ceo says oh here here's pictures of of what the person did now now you'll see mm-hmm. and it and 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 once you review this, once you see the pictures of what he did, you it will decomplicate what just happened. The interaction you just had with him, where you saw him as a human being, where you felt 
all these awful emotions of empathy and and caring about this person, I can help you with that. Here's a picture of what mm. he did. And there's a truth mm. to that, which is, yeah, they can always snap you back into, and this is what he did. Now what do you think of him? Oh, it's complicated. Life turns out to be really complicated. Sure Moral is. judgments turn out to be really fraught with all sorts of, you know, difficulties. That's cool. Yeah, is that, that's right. Is, was that any of your motivation to write a Naked Singularity, to investigate that? Or because it's mainly, it's like a lot of it's just a heist book, you know? But there's all, you know, there's that guy on death row. It's It's been like six I, years since I read the book or something. I think a lot about, about that novel was myself interrogating these things to myself about some of the things you've pointed out, some of the weird reactions we have to other human beings are centered around moral decisions and acts of violence and et cetera. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a large part of what, back to the compulsion, what causes the compulsion for me to write, a large part of it is a motivation to understand, not necessarily understand myself, which I don't particularly think I'm a highly interesting topic even for myself, but understand <laughs> everything existence our lives the way we interact with each other what society is etc a lot of my motivation motivations too weak a word i would call it a compulsion to write in this manner is an attempt for myself to figure these things out to, to under to, to at least at a minimum strive towards a deeper understanding than is possible when you're distracted by everything that comes at you in everyday life mm -hmm. yeah, I, I relate to that for sure yeah, I'm trying to think of something right now. There's someone who's talking about the difference between, like, a, the, their operational terms were different, but, like, a literary mindset and that daily mindset. And they are so different. And I am not good at the daily mindset. That's why I like writing. It's like I like sitting there and just thinking things through. Because when those things start flying at you, it's just... I just feel like I'm not at the pith of existence. And maybe that's a solipsistic feeling. I don't know. But when I write... Mm -hmm it is really trying to just figure out what's going on and trying to control it in some small way. Sure. Because we don't have it, have much control. The pop culture myth is like inspiration hits you and you have to drop everything and uh -huh. and create And you write it, it in three nights. And that does happen sometimes. <laughs> I'm not going to say it never happens. There it's are actually times. wonderful when it happens, it's, but it's it, so rare. It, well, the yeah, other time, Brett Easton Ellis did meth for three weeks and wrote a novel once, but I, you know, I don't know if I'd recommend that. <laughs> it's, wonderful, it's wonderful when it happens if you can immediately feed it. True, uh -huh. true, true. But more often what happens is, and I think what you're getting at, is that you have to enter a certain kind of headspace or... Um, view receptive you have to be really receptive kind of view before the art creating will happen mm -hmm. so totally when i'm frustrated when people often say to me uh, how did you write while doing all that work sometimes you just you're not necessarily sure it's going to result in anything that that is looks like a novel or looks like fiction or looks like art or whatever but you do need to create the openness to it first before you can experience it and have it um, actually emerge into something. I had a professor at uh, Sarah Lawrence, Garth Risk Hallberg, I'm sure. Yeah, Sergio, he did he uh, interview I know him, you? I know him. Yeah, yeah. He always said that he likes to write after he's had a change of consciousness. And I think that allows you to get into that re receptive mind space because once you have kind of like a, an abrupt shift, I feel like you're more readily unhinged from those sort of obsessions and compulsions that drive you every day that's those have those grooves you come out of those grooves 
and you kind of can see things a little more broadly. Yeah, he, he used to wake up and just, I don't know if he still does this, but he woke up at like 4.30, the ass crack of dawn, and just wrote when he was so envious of half that. drunk on sleep, you know? I don't know how he did that. <laughs> well, for me, the, the problem is I need experience because experience is what I'm going to transmute into sure. the work. But then I also need to create the conditions for this openness um, in a lot of ways can be defined as not experiencing something. Right. <laughs> so there's that tension between you need to be, I, I think that the best work comes um, comes from experience, comes from living out in the world and, ten tra- and then transmuting that into art, which is why I'm often, I'm not very often tempted by the idea of being a full-time writer who wakes up every day and just stares at the walls till something's right. It, not particularly appealing to me for a variety of reasons. Me either. But one of them being that I think that that could get, as you're referring to a little bit of that solipsism of like mm-hmm. navel gazing type stuff that I definitely am not down with or in favor of. Mm-hmm. I'm willing to discuss anything. I, I know what about is very adamant that um, we discuss this cheese platter, but... <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that. I think... I'm um, feeling a little ill, actually. <laughs> gave, me much, gave me too much do permission. Me- do you need medical attention? Yes. <laughs> what's better, this, this, boor- this Borskin cheese or Steph Curry's three-point shot? I don't watch basketball, but I. But this do is this is where Steph empathy Curry is pretty uh, impressive. Yeah, he, that's one name I know. Yeah, he's there you become go. more than a basketball player, shall we say? Or I think so. I mean, he, I he, most people know. He, he joked about class, he, he and a co-teacher showed him as like we were doing a class and like reaching towards the impossible, which sounds really cheesy, but it was actually really cool the way we framed it. It was a long time ago, and I don't really remember that deeply. It was for high school students, and that was one of the videos we showed. And I got into it. I'm not saying I'm not into basketball. I've just never been put on. I wasn't That's in a sports thing. family, but I would love to go to a game. I think it's very exciting when you're in it. It's all about just Sorry, learning, Brian. you know? Yeah. But also a toss-up. That cheese is pretty good. That was like a That was like an empathy exam right there. <laughs> The mayor's guy, it, it's being used as a decent shorthand here in New York City to encompass a lot of criminal justice reforms issues that were active. I guess I should have said at some point, I'm the legal director of a place called New York County Defender Services. It's an indigent, it's a public defender office in Manhattan. So I do a lot of work centered around legal reform with respect to New York City and the way its criminal justice system operates. So one of the things the mayor has declared as a goal is the closing of Rikers Island. Um, I think most people know what Rikers Island is. Mm-hmm. Have yeah. you been, Kate? Yeah, I used to teach yeah. there. I've been yeah. there many times. What would that alleviate? Well, also you got to talk about what the plan looks like because I'd be yeah. curious about your thoughts about I the the, about the, the, the plan is to keep incarcerating people, well, but to increase them in, in sufficiently fewer numbers that you can move them to more humane facilities right. so that aren't as toxic. Or the community that. jails, right? That they're talking right. about opening. So before you can, the idea being before you could do that, you would have to drastically reduce the number of incarcerated New Yorkers. Mm-hmm. So to do that, you would have to encompass all these other uh, reforms like bail reform, mm-hmm. um, discovery reform. So a good way to view it is to say, hey, uh, the mayor announces as a goal, we, we want to close Rikers Island. Okay. In order to do that, you would have to do X, Y, Z. And so that leads to other criminal justice reforms that we're active in in pushing for. Oh, so uh, it's funny. We were just talking about basketball. Uh, <laughs> there's like a little like celebrity coalition going on. And I don't know if you've heard about it. It's oh, like, Jay- Jay-Z, like Meek Jay-Z, Meek Mill, uh, Robert Kraft, I think, for the, pa- the Patriots owner. Um, the dude who owns the uh, 76ers. I don't know the sports people. Have you I heard about this? Yes. And there's also is the NFL. Def- is this like, you know, NFL NFL it's about two weeks old, but it seems legit. And, it is? Okay. and there's also mm-hmm. the NFL Players Union, which is, you know, taking a, a, a pretty 
laudable uh, role in, in, in advocating for criminal justice reform. I, I guess probably as an offshoot of the whole Colin Kaepernick. I think totally. Yeah, I think I, I, think I definitely totally think that. so. I mean, Jay-Z has been a, a huge advocate of Colin Kaepernick and his deal, so. And we in New York County, meaning New York County Defender Services, you know, we've partnered with the, the NFL Players Union on certain issues, and and I believe we're we're going to be meeting with this new coalition that you're referring to also. Yeah, this is part of what I think we started, or close to the start, I said, as a big change in society in the sense of being aware of these issues and uh-huh. being motivated that simply wasn't there six, seven years ago at all. Huh. So that's heartening and that's that's great. And that's the kind of activation of empathy, maybe of a social empathy. Sure. That I think uh, is an example of what can happen uh-huh. if you beat the drum long enough. And that was a video that activated me around these issues when I was 14. Okay. I saw the Books Through Bars, Books Not Bars, sorry, Books Through Bars is an organization video out of the Ella Baker Center that can, I think you can still find it on YouTube, and it was about youth incarceration. And it, sadly, many of the stats haven't changed at all from the film. I watched it mm. fairly recent, a couple of years ago again, and it, I, it totally, I mean, it moved me deeply. Huh. I couldn't believe what was happening. And I would have had no idea unless I'd seen this video. That somebody showed in a youth group I was in. Yes, I mean wow. stuff right? can work, you yeah. know. I mean, I think that yeah. the criminal justice activist work is an example of that, mm-hmm. where it has worked. I think Michelle Alexander's book, oh, yeah. maybe 2012, mm-hmm. has been, you know, a real good catalyst. And mm-hmm. she's not alone. I mean, there's other other people have been beating this drum for a long time, but I think it, it, it finally feels like society is recognizing that the status quo can't continue. And that's heartening. I'm generally an impatient person and it just makes me want to see, you know, even more progress made. But when I'm being reasonable, I, I, I view it as a as a positive development. Has it sustained since Trump's gotten into office, the momentum? Yeah, I mean, mass incarceration is, is generally not a federal phenomena. Yeah. I, I say generally. I mean, the federal system contributes it. Don't get me wrong. But it's, it's generally, I would say, the last two years have not seen any diminution of anything. The progress has continued. One of the few bright spots probably in the last two years. That's that's surprising, actually. And t- two wins that I was excited about from the last election was the voter disenfranchisement in Florida being overturned. People with felony yeah, convictions being able mm-hmm. to vote, although nonviolent. I would love to see everybody who had a felony conviction able to vote. And also the in Louisiana, the 1012 law being overturned where non-unanimous juries were convicting people. And it was Jim Crow era mainstay and, you know, often manipulated in very racist mm. ways. I didn't hear about that, actually. Yeah. I was just, I was able to spend some time through a conference, Arts for Justice conference, actually, with a guy named Norris Henderson, who spent many years at Angola prison and was very instrumental in changing the culture there from the inside and now that he's out he has an organization called vote voices of the experienced and he works actually very closely with prison administration as he says he kind of has a key to the place so we got to see a lot of i think stuff most people don't get to see when they go there mm-hmm. including death row which was very intense yeah obviously and he's a, i mean he's just incredible i just urge everybody to look him up because it's like he's a, just a major civil rights leader of our time but largely unknown obviously outside of this small sphere and he was really instrumental in pushing that forward and really getting the voter 
turnout for it. And we were there right on the heels of that, like maybe two weeks or, or less after. So it was very fresh. Hmm. Uh, so a lot of folks in prison were talking to us about that as well. So those things, you know, they give me hope. But I also, I think a lot, a lot, a lot has to be undone. And I don't think I'm going to see what I would like to see in my lifetime. But it is heartening to see. I mean, changing, I, w- when I, I want immortality, so <laughs> I, I'm prepared to be uh, let down. Go I mean, ahead, I think there's been progress in terms of the society's, the spirit of the age with respect to these issues. But the truth is, you know, in New York, I get a skewed view because we have really highly effective, well-funded, or at least I shouldn't say well-funded because I'll always take more, but funded, <laughs> Better funded public defender yeah. offices. But throughout the country, you see just a pronounced lack of will towards properly funding the right to counsel and mm. indigent defense offices mm. throughout the country. It's a crisis. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so while I'm glad that society is, you know, deciding that the status quo is, is unacceptable when it comes to criminal justice reform, there's a lot that needs to be done mm-hmm. before you could say that we have a fair criminal justice system. Oh, tre- that, that tremendous. That lives up to the ideals. Because mm-hmm. um, now I'm taking a national view. I'm not talking about my work in New York City or dealing with those, that administration. I'm talking, nationally, there's just huge gaps and tremendous um, injustice flourishing everywhere. Mm. So that, in that sense... It, the, as what you say about never being satisfied in your lifetime, I, I certainly don't expect to be satisfied in my lifetime with the way we um, organize our society around criminal justice issues. But I was trying to strike an optimistic note as per the producer's request. <laughs> oh, sorry. I brought yeah. us down to the you ditch again. Down again. Now we if we can't well, satisfy ourselves, Listen, we will well, satisfy but our producers. You know what? The, I mean, I think the, the bright spots in the conversation always come from individual stories and from the humanity that prevails despite i mean for me anyway that's what keeps me able to be in this world but i don't feel many bright spots in criminal justice on the whole and that that's just true it's hard to spin that but Mm -hmm. it's a i mean it's it's a dark area you know it's like you have people that put in are put in unfortunate scenarios and commit unfortunate acts and then we have to figure out a way to get the whole thing to work better and honestly like you know the rehabilitation element is what we're fighting for, right? And so that <laughs> I think we're just so far from focusing on that rather than the punishment. Well, also the systems are just so deeply rooted and deeply connected to past historical atrocities. I mean, it's like you have to upend our whole society, really, mm-hmm. <laughs> is to yeah. get criminal justice to be something that's not yeah, so Yeah, you have to re- reverse far. engineer something that's been in place for a very long so time. So it's sort of daunting, yeah. right? I mean, of yeah. course it happens in steps, but unless you went total anarchy, which also is terrifying to think about. But on the <laughs> conversation of, or the question of what can people do to get involved, I'm actually curious to ask Sergio because people ask me this all the time and I, I actually don't ever quite know what to say because I happen to have volunteered in this field for a long time, did a lot of teaching, although it's not necessarily easy to teach in prisons, especially around New York City. They're very saturated with volunteers, kind of blessedly in other places in the country. They're definitely not. And for my particular work with writers, you know, we have we can't even handle the amount of people that want to work with us. So I'm curious. So what do you say to people who ask you that? I'd like to have a better answer. Again, you know, New York City has a ton of great organizations like the Vera Institute or mm-hmm. Vocal New York. A lot of them came up and you, you mentioned earlier the meeting that we had with the second time you and I met or mm-hmm. a, where, uh, you know, there are a lot of great organizations doing really powerful work. I think in the, you know, nowadays, if you happen to be in one of these communities that I'm referring to that maybe doesn't have a, a public defender office where they rely on 
on civil attorneys to kind of get assigned cases and stuff. Start a political movement to say that, you know, your public defender's offices have to be properly funded. Because to me, the primary methodology by which true reform is going to happen is through the attorney of the accused. Hmm. And maybe I'm biased because that's what I've been doing for 20 years. But I feel like if you properly fund public defender offices and you make it so that the average public defender doesn't have 300 clients but has 40, if you can do that, if you can accomplish that, which is what a lot of my work has been to try to accomplish that in New York City, if you can accomplish that, then I think you'll see a lot of the abuses being addressed. And then you'll see more of the higher level activism taking place. But first, it's an emergency situation. It's people not receiving the proper, you know, their constitutional right to an attorney is being violated every day. Yeah, I was going to ask country. whether the language was at all ambiguous on that. There's because, a big article about that this because week. Because if that you, came out, came uh, you know, what's the difference between a, a public defender and what, what was it, a civil attorney, you said? Well, it's, uh, when I like say what, civil, I mean attorneys who are kind of put, allow their names to be put on a list to be assigned the criminal case where the criminal right. defense may not be their primary focus, may not be their they area do civil, of expertise. They do civil stuff, yeah. And even if it were their area of expertise, they're one individual not functioning outside of an office with the resources, with the investigators, social workers, administrative right. staff that help us do our job at the highest level so throughout the country you see um, either really poorly funded public defender offices or this even worse system being used and it's to the detriment of mostly indigent people of color who, whose right. rights are being violated so I would say that the the new activism or or this the activism that we've identified to, to evolve into a more effect has to center around this issue of properly funding public defenders and mm. properly meeting the constitutional right to counsel for accused because that's the only methodology by which we can get widespread national change. Yeah, the parallels between that and education are scary. Oh, for I sure. mean, just the lack of funding in both of those areas. Is, oh. uh, the public sphere just feels like it's really dropping the ball. And there's also... That's not a pos positive. Positive There's also guys. a couple organizations, more probably more than a couple, but a movement around prosecutors as well, and really looking at changing the way that prosecutors are are doing their work. Prosecutors have a lot of power, and that's why I think the indigent defense bar is a check against that power. Yeah, and that's why I think the next evolutionary step in this whole you know you know movement against mass incarceration has to center around the public defender. Mm. I'm, I'm fortunate every day to go to an office and and be surrounded by public defenders, the people who've basically devoted their careers to you know, battling on behalf of the forgotten, the lost. Yeah. <laughs> and, and not for money, not for prestige, because nobody says, ooh, that's, a, you know, that's impressive that you're a public defender. So I'm, I'm, I'm one of the, my joys in life is just every day being surrounded by these people. We have a common goal, we have a common mindset about what this all means, and so, it's great and and it's exciting, but I just want would love to see society recognize a special role of these people and how if you don't give them the resources, you're not you're not truly creating a, a, a fair equal system. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's how I would caution people to get involved either either through political activism towards making sure that you where you are, the public defender office is being properly supported. Or, or directly, aid, you know, volunteering at a public defender office in, in some of these jurisdictions that could really use. So if I, yeah, if I wanted to do that, what would I do? Would I just be like filing? Would I be doing anything? Could, what? Yeah, what can I do? <laughs> I mean, I guess it would depend on what you could do. Yeah, I mean, yeah. What skills I have? Yeah. Right, and but 
But I think that, as I said, a lot of these public defender entities, whether they're government offices or not, are under siege. They just they cannot deal with the volume. They need manpower. Right. And and so part of that is lobbying for more money because money allows you to hire lawyers, hire, allows you to hire investigators, social workers. Would it, w- w- is it also somewhat of a problem of incentive, like payment, well, like salary wise? Uh, is that are there not enough public defenders because of that? Or is it more just an issue of we don't have the resources to hold that many public defenders in this office? I think it. I mean, a, a lot of leaders of public defender offices have basically said, I to comply with the ABA standards or to meaningfully represent all the clients that you're giving me, I would need 20 more lawyers. Hmm. To get 20 lawyers, I would have to hire them. I would have to pay them. I don't have the money to pay them. Right, right. So it's literally not that com- not that complicated. It literally is, you know, society that that jurisdiction not prizing what public defenders do sure. enough to pay. Getting getting people convincing people to uh, defend criminals, I guess, is in in the public's eyes. There, no. There's no shortage of talented people who are willing to do this work, but you still have to get paid. You have to live. Mm-hmm. You have to you have to be hired. Yeah. To do it. I don't think that there's any shortage, especially nowadays. I don't think there's any shortage of of attorneys who would gladly sign up to do this really critical, important, really intellectually thrilling work. There's just a a failure to properly fund these offices in in many places. And I think as we talk today, as far as I know, MDC in Brooklyn was without heat. So there's been a lot of calls for protesting that getting that heat back on. Obviously, it's been freezing in New York Mm -hmm. in the last few days getting extra blankets, people aren't getting access to commissary to even buy an extra sweatshirt or seeing their family. So it's sometimes it's also, or often it's also very urgent too. So as we're sitting here talking about it with a cheese platter, you know, there are folks yeah. just right across the river suffering right now. Yep. You know, you guys want to, sorry that we we're supposed to end on a positive note. We'll we really one. didn't do a great All right, job I'll do a closer. That. Okay, that's it for today's episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and review on whichever platform you're listening. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at Animal Riot Press or Facebook and Instagram at the same name or through our website, AnimalRiotPress.com. This has been the eighth episode of the Animal Riot Podcast with your host, Brian Birnbaum, and featuring Sergio De La Pava and Kate Smeisner. Transcripts for our deaf and hard of hearing animals are provided by Jonathan Kay, and we are produced by me, Katie Rainey. See you later, you filthy animals. Getting gully as the fern. How no much about leaving.